Okay, let's, uh, let's call this to order. Thank you very much uh, for coming to the Cato Institute's forum today on tax policy and economic growth, understanding the effects. Uh, Congress recently passed the largest tax increase in many years, and many Democrats favor further tax increases. Meanwhile, at the state level, uh, many governors and state legislatures are working in the opposite direction. Uh, they are looking to cut income tax and corporate tax rates. So how will all these tax changes affect economic growth? We've got a great panel today to look at this issue. Travis Brown uh, on this side will look at state tax policy, and Will McBride and J.D. Foster on this side will look at uh, federal taxes. But before I introduce the panel, uh, let me give you a few thoughts about the recent federal tax increase bill. Uh, there has been a lot of focus, and most of the focus leading up to the passage of the bill was on the hike in the top uh, individual income tax rate. Uh, but the top capital gains tax rate uh, also spiked in 2013 from 15% uh, up to 24%. Uh, I've recently written about capital gains, and that's one of the, the handouts uh, outside. So let me describe to you for a few minutes uh, why the capital gains tax increases make no economic sense. Uh, then I'll hand over the podium to Travis. Some policymakers view low capital gains taxes as an unfair loophole. Uh, but capital gains are different than ordinary income, and just about every country in the world has figured that out. The average capital gains tax rate in the 34 uh, OECD or high-income countries is just 16%. The U.S. rate now, including state taxes, is 28%. So the United States has become a high-tax country with regard to capital gains. So why do most countries have much lower capital gains tax rates than we do? Well, I'll give you five reasons. Uh, first, capital gains taxes tax the appreciation of assets due to inflation. So in an, in an environment with inflation and capital gains taxes, the return on capital is reduced and we get lower investment. Lower investment returns means lower productivity and lower productivity means uh, slower economic growth. So the negative effects of inflation are one good reason why we need a low capital gains tax rate. Secondly, capital gains are taxed on a realization basis, which creates what's called lock-in, uh, which means that taxpayers delay selling investments uh, with unrealized gains to avoid the tax hit. And for the overall economy, that's thought to reduce growth because it locks in uh, resources into lower-yielding investments rather than having those investments flow to higher-valued uses. Third, capital gains taxes creates double taxation. Uh, corporate share values equal the, the present value of expected future returns. So if expected returns uh, for a corporation rise, share prices rise, individuals get hit with a capital gains tax. But those future earnings for the corporation are also taxed at the corporate level. So you're hitting the same uh, return twice, which again is bad for investment. Uh, fourth, competitiveness. Capitals become highly mobile across uh, international borders and also across state borders, as Travis will tell us about, and that has prompted nearly every country in recent years to cut tax rates on corporations, wealth, dividends, capital gains, small business income, and other types of capital income. Uh, U.S. politicians uh, love to grandstand about uh, people shifting their investments abroad, but the mobility of capital is frankly just a permanent reality of the world that U.S. policymakers need to get used to. Fifth, and, and, fi and finally, uh, the most important uh, issue with respect to capital gains, I think, is that reduced capital gains taxes encourages entrepreneurship and investment in growth companies. Uh, that's because the payoff 
from a successful startup or young growth company is an appreciation of the value of the company, a capital gain. So low taxes boost investment from investors who take big risks on unproven young companies, uh, so-called angel investors. Uh, angel investors are essentially uh, usually just rich people who could alternately uh, invest in, say, tax-free municipal bonds, uh, and we want to encourage them to invest in startups and young growth companies because it's so important for the economy. So the capital gains tax directly affects the willingness of angel investors of rich people, uh, frankly, to fund startups and growth companies in the United States, which is extremely important. And also note that when angel investors or rich people uh, exit their investments, they funded a startup for a number of years, they exit their investment, they take their after-tax returns, and most of the time they, go, they turn around and invest in, in new young growth companies. That's the, the sort of virtuous cycle that's been at the center of Silicon Valley's success uh, ever since the capital gains tax rates uh, were cut in the late 1970s. So to sum up on capital gains taxes, uh, capital gains tax cuts, in my view, would increase investment in growth companies, spur greater entrepreneurship that would uh, push up U.S. innovation and productivity and create higher income for all Americans. And those advantages of capital gains taxes have led many economists over the decades, uh, Alan Greenspan, uh, Bruce Bartlett, uh, Steve Enton, who I think is here in the audience somewhere, to argue that we ought to end capital gains uh, taxes on individuals altogether. Uh, unfortunately, Congress has gone in the opposite direction this year, but Congress can't repeal globalization and it can't repeal the laws of economics, so I bet that lawmakers will be revisiting the capital gains tax issue uh, before too long. So with that, I'm going to uh, introduce our three speakers uh, in order. Uh, first is uh, Travis Brown, who's the CEO and co-founder of, uh, and I didn't ask Travis how to pronounce the name of his company, Pelopis. but I will take a guess, uh, Pelopidas LLC, which is a, a St. Louis-based public affairs firm. He's also the president of Let Voters Decide, which supports state tax reform, and he's a contributor, for, contributor to Forbes.com. Travis is the author of a new book, How Money Walks which is uh, this one uh, here, and I'm not sure whether we brought copies or how those are Got available. Got a few back but, there. Yep. Oh, we did. Oh, great. Um, the, the book looks at 15 years of detailed IRS data uh, to study the interstate migration of U.S. taxpayers. So Travis is going to discuss his results with a very fancy uh, graphical uh, screen over there and tell us uh, how money is moving and how much money is moving from high-tax states to low-tax states in the United States. So I thank uh, Travis very much for visiting us today from Missouri. Uh, second, we're going to go to J.D. Foster, who's the senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and one of D.C.'s uh, top uh, experts on federal tax policy. J.D. came to Heritage in 2007 after serving at the Bush OMB, where he was Associate Director for Economic Policy. Uh, before joining OMB, J.D. was at the Treasury, where he was Senior Advisor to Economics in the Office of Tax Policy. He also worked on Capitol Hill for many years uh, uh, for uh, Phil Crane on the Ways and Means Committee. And a long time ago, I won't tell you how long, he was uh, the Executive Director of Tax Foundation, where he was uh, my boss here at one of my first jobs in Washington. J.D. has a Ph.D. in economics from Georgetown University. And to wrap things up, uh, Will McBride uh, will, is the chief economist at the Tax Foundation. Uh, he's recently written an extremely useful study that looks at two dozen acad academic empirical studies on the relationship between taxes and economic growth. Uh, he's going to summarize the results of those academic studies for us today. Uh, will holds a Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University, and he's also uh, got a bachelor's degree in physics and electrical engineering, which uh, proves that he's a real smart guy, uh, I think. Uh, so, 
with that, I'm going to hand the podium over to Travis. Now, Travis is going to go through uh, his presentation, I think, uh, using the screen. And uh, I think he, he's uh, maybe during the Q&A and afterwards, uh, uh, people, if they're interested further in uh, the, the fancy software that he's put together, uh, can, uh, can, can talk, talk to him as well. Travis? Great. Um, if it's okay, I may just stay here so we can access the screen a little easier. Uh, first of all, welcome. Uh, thank you for uh, attending. Uh, taxes and growth uh, seminar here, your proof that incentives matter, um, and it's, it's great to have you. I'm from the Show Me State, uh, uh, Missouri, or Missouri, depending on what part of the state you're from. And we found several years ago that it would be incredibly interesting if we could make the what the Internal Revenue Service data file uh, has more intelligible. You know, wouldn't it be great to understand for states like ours that have not been growing, literally our real or G uh, nominal GDP growth was ranks 48th in the last decade, ahead of only Ohio and Michigan. So we're on a quest to try to see policies that would apply to higher speeds and rates of growth. So wouldn't it be fascinating if we could prove, you know, with like precision radar, county by county migration, what we know is happening already. We know that many St. Louisans are in Naples, Florida, not just for the winter, not just for the sunshine, but for permanent residency. So we set out on a quest to geocode this and make this more available. The summaries of America's Biggest Winners and America's Biggest Losers are found in the book, How Money Walks, and we do have uh, tree copies over there and Kindle copies available and a number of different apps that will share this data to you uh, via your smartphone. But the bottom line is um, what the rest of this distinguished panel would also show in the empirical studies of all the work and in much of the literature is that people tend to move their income where it's most welcome and where there's the least amount of entrepreneurial friction. And we see that actually in the data from state to state, no matter where you're from. We see it within the counties uh, in Northern Virginia versus uh, counties of Maryland. We see it uh, within how cities grow and, and migrate over time. And by looking at the widest amount of IRS and U.S. Census Bureau data, comparing jobs you know, with working wealth, the state 1040 tax return data that we have, and residency transfers net of any gain or loss of adjusted gross income, or AGI, we can compare that to people transfers. So for example, in this metro DC area, you have experienced nearly uh, population count increase over this time period, roughly equivalent to adding and filling the Washington Redskins Stadium one more time. However, you have not seen a corresponding increase in adjusted gross income. That is what we call or often refer to as working wealth. So in effect, what you do have is a large suburbanization trend moving outside the D.C. area, going farther and farther into northern Virginia and parts of western Maryland. But worse yet, the patterns show that some states that have uh, a better tax regime, uh, state plus local tax burden that may be more competitive, or in nine states, no personal income tax at all, those states as a group are winning and winning big. And it's having an effect right here in Washington as well every time you do congressional redistricting. A state like mine that once had large cities like St. Louis and Kansas City 
once had 16 members of Congress. Now our voice is down to eight because we're, we, we're one of only two states in the country. Uh, unfortunately, that's never seen a single decade in the last century of double-digit growth. So sometimes you can be on the right track in terms of keeping your state plus local tax burden relatively low, but if it doesn't come with growth in what entrepreneurs and small businesses find attractive, you can still get run over. So let's illustrate that. Exhibit A over here on the screen with how Money Walks can walk you through the time series of what's happened to California. Um, what we show in the book, we have a whole chapter dedicated just to some of the big variances. Uh, New York lost $58 billion net loss of adjusted gross income in the last 15 years. $58 billion. That's pretty close to the size of the Pennsylvania state budget. Um, Chicago and places in Illinois have lost you know, over $20 billion, or roughly the size of the Missouri state budget. And California shows that they're draw the only states they've been drawing on a net trade, if this was a NBA trade for the All-Star game this weekend, uh, California has been winning with those states indicated in red, and they've been shielding wealth and people to the states in green. But on a net basis, they've been losing uh, just about $32 billion. And if you tease out the data from your smartphone uh, on Droid or on Apple, iOS systems, you'll see that 20% of that California wealth is going right to Maricopa County, Arizona. And what the economists would quick, be quick to suspect is that why would someone leave 13.3% income tax rates now, thanks to Governor Brown, and go to Maricopa County when they could go right to zero in Clark County, Nevada, in Las Vegas. Guess what? The numbers speak that out as well, that the income shift to Las Vegas from Californians is larger than even the massive shift we already see into Maricopa County. So you can walk through this analysis. I'll be happy to take specific questions as we go along, because this lends itself to looking at your county, your state, your analysis. Uh, I'll show you a little bit of the, how the colors change with America's biggest winner, which is the state of Florida. So by contrast, Florida, uh, which also has a, its own dedicated chapter in the analysis, has received over $86 billion. And almost everyone in the country has been participating in this. So let's just show you a little bit of how the graph gets more and more red as the time period goes on using the time series analysis. So for many on the East Coast, it won't be a surprise that New Yorkers New Jersey residents, people from Connecticut, folks uh, all across the East Coast find Florida an attractive competitive tax regime at the state and local level. But it's expanded much beyond that. And folks from Michigan, folks from Minnesota, and specific counties in particular that once had large pockets of wealth are transferring to those places where tax regimes are most welcome. So. We'll look forward to your questions. We look forward to sharing this by a free app 
uh, on your Droid or your Apple iOS. If anyone wants uh, a copy of the extensive winners and losers made possible from the book, we've got a few copies back there. If you just share your email, we'll be happy to get you one before you leave today. We're excited to be able to prove, similar to a working pulse or a high blood pressure test when you arrive at a, at a doctor's visit, you know, the past performance of the last 15 years. And we know it lines up to a lot of the other empirical studies that have been done that I think others will address. But we want uh, you to have a constituent affairs tool that you can easily share with a little bit of familiarity of the app. And we hope that you'll share this with the people that uh, may be interested in your state in your congressional district. Thank you. So, pleasure to be with you all. Appreciate uh, the invitation from Chris and Cato. Uh, Chris was uh, worked for me at the Tax Foundation a long time ago, and uh, we've had a great working relationship ever since, and we appreciate it. What I'm going to do is, uh, in effect, kind of bridge from what Travis said and, and uh, then what uh, Bill's going to talk about and give you sort of a framework to uh, how to think about all these things. Uh, if you saw this morning's uh, newspaper, you saw an ad from Government Motors here for some of its cars, emphasizing numbers, zero. They like the number zero because it's suggesting this is a good deal. They like these numbers are supposed to suggest as well, this is a good deal. What are they trying to tell you with all of this? Well, these are signals. They're trying to tell you that there's a good deal. Another automobile, uh, auto company in the same newspaper had an ad that was suggesting they had the lowest prices of the year, which I thought was quite stunning since this is February. But they're still trying to tell you something. There's a signal there. When you got on, took your last flight and you sat down to your computer terminal and you started looking for flights, did you just buy the first one that popped up taking you to your destination or did you look through it a little bit? Maybe what airlines you prefer, what flights that you prefer, what price was the best price. You're looking for these various elements, and particularly the price in this case, to figure out what you should do. The price is a signal to you as consumer of what you want to do. Think about the following experiment. Imagine uh, President Obama's giving the State of the Union, and instead of what he gave us in terms of economic policy in the State of the Union, he tried out something like this. Uh, the economy was in terrible shape, and we all know that. And it's doing much better, but it's not good enough. The economy needs to be much stronger, and I'm going to take action, common sense action, to improve the economy. If the economy is so weak, what we need is more economists. That's obviously the shortfall. We need more economists to help the economy. And so what I'm proposing today is that we eliminate the, uh, the payroll tax for all economists for the next two generations. Eliminate the payroll tax, their wages will rise on an after-tax basis, and we'll have a lot more economists, and the economy will do much better. But we shouldn't stop there. We need to go on. We have other problems. We have a problem. We need long-term growth as well. And long, key to long-term growth is engineers. We need more engineers in this country, but we need top-flight engineers. So what I'm proposing today is that we will raise the payroll tax on engineers and drive out these old, uh, antiquated, uh, foggy engineers that we've had. And as they leave, the dearth of engineers will drive up wages for future engineers and we'll have a lot more engineers and the economy will be much stronger. People will respond to these signals. And then he notes, we don't have a spending problem, we have a health care problem. 
People spend too much on health care. So I propose that we double the payroll tax for doctors. If we don't have so many doctors, people won't be spending so much on health care. We'll solve our problem that way. Now, this is obviously a bit farcical, and the president has a sense of humor, so I don't think he would be too insulted by what I, what I was just describing. But the point is, these are signals. This tax, this payroll tax that he would be using in these policies are signals the government would be trying to use to people to change their behavior. We're going to have more economists, so we'll get rid of the payroll tax. We're going to have fewer uh, current engineers uh, and more engineers in the future raise their wages by raising their payroll tax, and we'll have fewer doctors today and less health care spending by raising the payroll tax on doctors. Of course, none of that makes any sense. It wasn't intended to be a logical argument. The point is how people use signals and tax policy to distort what's going on in the economy. Now, how does the economy really operate? A lot of complexity to it, but when you take a step back, it operates because it has a key signaling system. Very complicated, self-directed, it's called prices. Prices are the signaling system throughout the economy. And one thing we have a general consensus on amongst economists, this isn't an ideological statement, is that the economy works best when those signals are clearest. When they are clear to those who are receiving them, whether consumer or worker or firm, when the signals are clear, the economy performs the best. The trouble, of course, is that most policymakers think along the same lines as your investment advisor. They always know how best to employ your money. So they always have some idea. Yes, we admit that prices need to be clear, that if they're clear and undistorted, the economy will perform best, except in the following instances. I've always, as a policymaker, got some better idea of how to distort the economy and make it perform better. That's a basic delusion we have in Washington. Now, what's all this have to do with the economy? Taxes distort prices, which are the signals that direct how the economy operates. That's the key message every time you think about taxation and, and uh, economic activity, whether it's the flow of people from state to state or more on a macro level, the essential thing to always focus on. Prices are the signals that allocate resources that determine how well we're going to do and, and what we're going to produce and what we're going to pay for the things we buy. Prices are the signals, and taxes distorting those signals mean we misallocate how the resources are employed in the economy. Payroll tax reduces the return to work. Raise the payroll tax, and you're going to get less people in the workforce. Cut it, you get more. Uh, we, that was the basic theory, in a sense, behind the payroll tax cut. Of course, in that case, uh, we were trying to reduce uh, unemployment, and instead we added to the number of people in the workforce. Kind of a backwards policy, but that kind of goes to my experiment. Um, sales taxes. Sales taxes, or many jurisdictions levy sales taxes, but they tend to just levy them on goods. Not that they don't want to tax services, but services are hard to tax with the sales tax. There's nothing tangible there. So they have sales taxes on goods, and what's that do? It distorts what you purchase. You've got a tax-inclusive price when you buy goods and not on services. So, of course, at the state and local level, we're biasing everything that people buy away from goods towards services. Tax investment returns. What happens when you tax investment returns? Well, you raise what's called the cost of capital or the hurdle rate, a lot of other fancy terms. Basically what it's saying is you're raising the return the investor has to get in order to be, uh, to be uh, willing to make an investment. Well, when you raise the cost of capital by raising taxes on investment income, you're going to get less capital. 
If you get less capital, you're going to get lower wages. It's as simple as that. Less capital, lower wages. And that's what you get when you tax investment earnings. Now, there is a bipartisan understanding. Uh, they don't always want to admit it, but there really is a bipartisan understanding about the role of taxes and prices in the economy. Let me give you a couple examples. President Obama likes to talk about a tax loophole uh, that benefits multinational corporations that results in outsourcing of U.S. jobs. Now, he's dead wrong on the policy, but let's set that aside for a minute. What's he doing? He's explicitly acknowledging the role of taxes affecting behavior and its consequence for the economy. He's got the analysis wrong, but he's admitting the process. Take another example. A lot of folks support carbon tax. The president earlier on in, in his first term supported cap and tax. What was this all about? Well, of course, part of it was we need another revenue source to sustain the level of spending the president wants. That's his point of view. Don't agree with that. But set that aside for a moment. The other aspect of this, what makes it saleable to many, people, many Americans, is this is a tax on carbon, a way of raising the price of carbon emissions. Why do you want to do that? Because if you raise the price, there will be less carbon emissions. It's the whole theory. They, he admits, he acknowledges, he employs this economic mechanism of taxes affecting prices, affecting behavior. So there's no dispute, really, about how this works. Right to left, conservatives, liberals, Republicans, Democrats, we all understand this is how the economy works and this is how tax policy works. We just have different ideas of how to employ it. Folks on the left tend to acknowledge and emphasize the role of taxes on prices and the allocation of resources when it's consistent with other things they want to do. They want to have more revenue and they want to reduce carbon emissions, so they're absolutely convinced that a tax on carbon will have those effects. And they're right, it will. But when it comes to other things like taxes on investment income uh, and tax, higher wage, uh, taxes, uh, marginal income tax rates, there the effects, nah, not so much. Why? Because it's inconsistent with other policy goals that they have. But at least the important point here is they acknowledge taxes affect prices, affect the allocation of resources. That's really how to think about how taxes affect the economy. So how do you make the tax system more consistent with economic growth? It's very simple. Respect the importance of clear prices, undistorted signals. Respect the effect that taxation has on prices. We all acknowledge it most of the time. We tend to step away when there's some special thing where we think we're smarter than the market just because we're here in Washington. And if we, if we do this thing, everything will turn out better than the market would have left to its own devices. It's almost never true. It's, it's almost never true. Let the market operate. Move toward, in tax reform, as Mr. Camp is doing this in the Ways and Means Committee, trying to move towards a more neutral tax system where you are not distorting prices through taxation and your economy will perform better. It's uh, sort of the tax policy analog to the famous Hippocratic Oath. It's not possible to do no harm, but at least try to do less harm. That's the key. Thank you. All right, thank you, uh, Chris, J.D., and Travis, for uh, your uh, setting this up and um, putting this together um, and setting up my remarks here. Uh, I have no flashy um, screen or uh, PowerPoints or anything like this. This is, this is where it gets nerdy. 
This is uh, econometrics. So this is how, what have, what have economists done in this area of um, measuring the effect of taxes on economic growth? And um, it's, um, Adam Smith didn't really do this in a uh, rigorous way, but he certainly uh, laid the, the theoretical foundations and uh, made the case in, in various other ways, um, uh, providing the evidence that he could then. But um, over the last uh, 50 years or so, economists have turned more and more to uh, statistics, and uh, this, is, this is called econometrics. Um, and so there's, you might think from the press reports and um, uh, the publications of organizations like the Congressional Research Service um, that the, there's some sort of confusion here, that there's, there's not strong evidence one way or the other, that uh, academics, experts who've looked at this um, are uh, sort of, it's a one hand uh, uh, kind of thing versus the other hand, um, but it's, that's just not the case. So I, I have copies, uh, hopefully you have uh, at your seats, uh, copies of, of a review I did of uh, the most recent literature uh, in this area, the empirical literature, what economists have uh, found over the last 30 years. Uh, there's, a bit, there's been about, uh, in, in this review, there's 26 studies. Uh, now, that is not every single study that's ever been produced. What I did is um, I, I looked to the most prestigious academic journals, those that are peer-reviewed, those that have uh, the most influence in, in uh, academic economics, um, and I looked to the most uh, prestigious, most mainstream organizations like the IMF and the OECD uh, uh, for their conclusions uh, from studying this uh, statistically. So what you have there are 26 studies done in the last 30, 30 years. Uh, all but three of them find a negative effect of taxes. This is after controlling for all sorts of other things that are uh, thrown out as uh, things that complicate the story, uh, such as government spending, monetary policy, other economic conditions like uh, recessions and whatnot. So uh, these studies have gone through incredible lengths. Uh, believe me, I've tried to do this sort of analysis, and it's um, these are, to get something published in an academic journal, it, it is not something you do on a weekend. It takes a year or more. Uh, typically, and this is through multiple revisions, uh, writing it by your uh, colleagues, getting it past the editors at the journal. This is this is no joke. So this is the best thing we have to um, resolving what are, what are the facts out there. Um, and so what the facts say is that um, taxes do, uh, controlling for all these factors, uh, harm economic growth, and um, this includes uh, even when you're, you're saying, well, we're raising taxes to pay down the deficit. We're raising taxes to, uh, to keep uh, defense spending where it is or, or whatever. These factors are all controlled for and still on net raising taxes from where they are uh, in these countries that are studied is a bad idea. In the long run, it's a bad idea for economic growth. So particularly, um, these studies find that um, most of them, and more and more, uh, the, the technique is to, to distinguish between types of taxes, and that makes perfect sense. Different taxes, uh, taxes on different things like uh, uh, investment uh, versus labor, they will have different effects. 
And so the payroll tax was mentioned. This is a tax on wages only. So this is a, uh, a direct tax on labor. Um, and it is structured in such a way, it's basically a regressive tax. It, it tops out at about 113000 in wages uh, the, for the most part. Um, then you've got an income tax, which is, uh, uh, has a broader base than that. It's, it's uh, including investment income, not just wages. It includes business profits. More than half of um, businesses in the, in the U.S. are taxed under the individual income tax code. Um, so it is, it is uh, hitting labor and investment, basically. Then you've got the corporate tax, which is basically the biggest tax on investment in most countries. Um, and so economic theory indicates these are going to have different effects, and these studies indicate they do have different effects. So um, essentially the uh, conclusion of those that distinguish between taxes is that the corporate income tax is the most harmful, followed by the individual income tax, followed by consumption taxes like sales taxes in the U.S. or, or value-added taxes in Europe, uh, followed by property taxes. Um, and so this, again, uh, connects with theory, supports theory. I mean, many theorists of, uh, of uh, the economics of taxes uh, find that uh, the, the, most, uh, the most efficient tax is the one least harmful to the economy. Um, uh, the, the most efficient tax that way would be a tax on unimproved land. So this is something that can't be changed, basically, uh, through higher or, or lower levels of tax. Um, so we're very, we're very far from that in the U.S., of course. We have, we have the highest corporate tax rate in the developed world. We have uh, extremely progressive income taxes, individual income taxes, the most progressive in the developed world. Um, that's not widely known. That's according to the OECD. And as mentioned, we have these, uh, we're becoming a high-tax country in terms of shareholder taxes on capital gains and dividends. Um, so this, this should all be bad for economic growth. So let me, let me review quickly uh, the, the major, most recent studies that um, support this, uh, this theory. So number one, you've got uh, somebody uh, who ran the president's uh, Council of Economic Advisors, Christina Romer, out of Berkeley, and uh, and her husband uh, David David Romer, they they wrote an article for the the most prestigious economic journal, the American Economic Review, in uh, 2010. This was um, maybe not coincidentally uh, about the same time that she resigned, um, uh, but the the results were not really uh, supportive of what the president wanted to do at that time, and or, or what he continues to want to do, which is raise income taxes. So what she did is she looked at, um, she and her husband looked at uh, just the U.S. And, and tax changes in the U.S. at the federal level since World War II and reduced that to just those tax changes that are amount to basically tax shocks that are not uh, changes uh, resulting from changes in the economy uh, to, to uh, deal with downturns, et cetera. So this is sort of um, in economics lingo, exogenous shock. So this gets around the problem of reverse causality, where uh, you can have an association between two things, but you don't know which one is causing the other. Okay, so this is one of the, one of, uh, the more novel techniques of dealing with that problem, uh, 
isolating the number of situations to, to those that are arguably uh, caused, that go in one direction of causation, go from the direction of taxes affecting the economy. So her estimates, uh, she and her husband's estimates, are that um, a 1% increase, uh, um, a, a tax increase, overall federal tax burden, if you will, a uh, tax increase of 1% of GDP lowers real GDP by about 3% after two years. And uh, they find the largest effect is from tax changes meant to promote economic growth. And the main channel is investment. Um, so then you have, uh, building on that, you have a, a forthcoming article in the same prestigious academic journal by Carol Mertens and Morton Raven uh, and they, dis they did uh, parse that into corporate income taxes and individual income taxes, which is excellent. Um, and, and they do find that um, there, are, there are different effects. And, and supporting the theory, the corporate income tax is more damaging. So they find that uh, a one percentage point uh, cut in the average individual income tax rate, this is... Uh, the tax burden, tax, the tax level as a share of GDP, tax revenues as a share of GDP. One percent cut in the average individual income tax rate raises real GDP per capita by 1.4 percent in the first quarter and by up to 1.8 percent after three quarters. So this is a rather immediate effect. They find a one percentage point cut in the average corporate income tax rate raises real GDP by per, cap, uh, per capita by 0.4% in the first quarter and by 0.6% after one year. It's more of a long-term effect. So um, putting this together, the, the effect of the corporate tax is actually larger per dollar of revenue than that of the individual income tax since the corporate tax raises about a quarter of the revenue that the individual income tax does. Uh, they also put this in the language of multipliers, which is uh, common among uh, typically Keynesian economists, but this is how do, do, do uh, changes in revenue or spending affect economic growth. And so in terms of multipliers, um, they find that uh, these tax multipliers from these, res their, uh, these results exceed most es estimates of spending multipliers. So taxes have a bigger effect than spending per dollar. Um, so then we've got uh, uh, a number of researchers who have zeroed in on the corporate income tax, or rather they have presumably started with the, an open-ended question, what are the, what is the, uh, which tax is most uh, harmful or has the biggest effect? And they in eventually find that the corporate income tax is the most harmful. So most recently we've got um, Canadian researchers uh, Ergate Ferrede and Bev Dalby uh, published an article uh, last year in the National Tax Journal. They look at statutory tax rates among the Canadian provinces. Uh, I think Chris could tell us what are there, 12 provinces? Oh, I didn't know that. So, so when they look at the uh, tax rates over the, over the last three decades in the Canadian provinces, they find that the corporate tax rate uh, is most important for economic growth. So they find uh, cutting the corporate rate by 10 points uh, raises, raises the annual per capita growth rate by one to two points. That's, that's pretty tremendous, actually. Um, I've been told by uh, 
by uh, Tyler Cowen told me this uh, one time that uh, the difference between the U.S. and Mexico is is one point of growth. If we'd had one point lower annual growth over the last hundred years, we'd be in the same situation as Mexico in terms of wealth. Um, so then you've got you've, other researchers have, ha have have done a similar analysis at different times at on uh, different countries, and they find uh, the same sort of results. So particularly, you've got um, um, a, a rather famous study by Young Lee and Roger Gordon, uh, done in 2005, in which they looked at 70 countries uh, um, during the 1980s and 1990s, and they find that, again, the corporate tax rate is the most, uh, most robustly harmful uh, to economic growth. Um, so then you've got a whole series of OECD papers. This is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's a big, uh, big operation based in Paris, um, and it's uh, uh, comprised of 34 of the most developed countries in the world. And um, they, they, they do these huge studies. Um, and so for a, a number of years, um, they published uh, various working papers uh, looking at the effect of taxes on economic growth. And they established this ranking. Um, that they eventually they published in a, a summarized uh, article in the um, the Economic Journal in 2011. So they, they their ultimate result is they they established this ranking I mentioned before that corporate income tax is the most harmful, followed by individual, followed by consumption and property. And uh, they, they find a number of other interesting results the, uh, that, uh, for instance, the more progressive the income tax, that is, that they, the more the burden is shifted to high income earners, the more damaging it is to economic growth. Uh, and they confirm these results in various ways. They look at not just aggregate or, uh, national level uh, aggregated numbers. They look at firm level data. and. Um, they find that, um, uh, likewise, the, these uh, results are supported at the, at the uh, firm level, that, and that particularly uh, it's taxes on investment um, that are the most, most harmful. So um, you got uh, one last one here I'll, I'll mention is uh, by Robert Barrow, who's a famous uh, economist. Might one day get a Nobel Prize. Uh, he wrote something with uh, C.J. Redlick uh, in 2011 for the Journal of Economics, Quarterly Journal of Economics, uh, looking at marginal tax rates. So, so they constructed a, a time series of average marginal income tax rates uh, from 1912, which is one year prior to the advent of the federal income tax, to 2006. And uh, so this is they're just looking at the U.S. Uh, they look, uh, they find that, um, sorry, so this is including federal and state income taxes as well as Social Security payroll tax on employers and employees. Okay, and they, they, they estimate the effect of annual changes in this uh, average marginal income tax rate uh, on, the, on the following years per capita GDP growth. And they control for defense spending, particularly other kinds of spending unemployment conditions, credit conditions, et cetera, they find that a cut in the average marginal tax rate of one percentage point raises next year's per 
next year's per capita GDP by around 0.5%. Okay, so in, in, again, in terms of multipliers, the tax multiplier is negative 1.1, while the defense spending multiplier ranges from 0.4 to 0.8. This implies that defense spending, for example, financed by additional tax revenue, reduces GDP. So we have very uh, clear evidence here, and there's no reason to, for the New York Times or others to speculate and, and claim there's uh, a fog of confusion about, about this. The economy is certainly complex, and there are lots of things that affect it. Um, but we have a, a huge preponderance of evidence pointing to the damaging effect of taxes, particularly taxes on corporate income and individual income. And the U.S. is particularly out of step in just those taxes. Again, we have the highest corporate income tax rate in the developed world, and we have the most progressive income tax system in the developed world. Uh, so this, is, uh, this may be a factor in uh, the slow econo economic growth we've seen recently and over the last 10 or so years. I, and it is uh, paramount that that be addressed if we intend to return to uh, historic levels of economic growth. Thank you.